Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Earlier, uh, Pastor Sean is out of town today, so I am preaching in his stead. And anytime that I, that I come and fill in for Pastor Sean, I, I, I don't know what the exact number is. I'm always humbled uh, that I, I have the opportunity to, to share with you uh, from God's Word. Uh, it's not a responsibility I, I take lightly. Uh, actually, it weighs heavy on me, for I want to make sure that what I say really does indeed come from God's Word. But if you've ever watched the movie Braveheart, so I know this is taking you back to the 90s, um, you, you probably remember that, that one scene where William Wallace, at the end, has been captured by the English as he's been fighting for Scottish independence, and he's being tortured during his execution. And he's kind of given this option of, okay, if you, really, if you want it to end swiftly, just ask for forgiveness, and we'll end it swiftly for you. So, you know, William Wall- Wallace, actually I should say Mel Gibson, in his classic line, says, freedom, one last time. And that's how, that's how he is executed in that movie. So why do I draw your attention to that scene in the movie? Well, for many Christians in, around the world, throughout history, they have experienced much similar things to what William Wallace endured uh, for Scottish independence. It's a common occurrence for us. So, for example, Caesar Nero, a, a brutal dictator, once lit up the streets of Rome with the burning bodies of Christians. Or he thought that's what he needed to do. Uh, Tyndale, William Tyndale, the, the reason that we have our Bibles in the English language, he was burned at the stake for being a heretic. To this day, actually, the 20th century was the bloodiest century when it came to the persecution of Christians. So why, why, do, why strike such a note to begin with? Well, it's because I believe it's important for us to, to think about and to think carefully about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So, uh, looking at Mark eight thirty one through 38, is going to be our passage for this morning, but let me kind of bring you up to speed where this is at in the Gospel of Mark. So, up to this point, Mark has been demonstrating that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of God. He, he introduces it, Mark 1, 1. He says, that in the, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And what he, he does throughout his gospel is he's a, a shower rather than a teller. Like, he just doesn't come out straight up. He tells you at the very beginning, but the rest of that, up, all the way up to chapter 8, 31, or 30, 29, it is, that He's been demonstrating all along through miracles, through sayings, through deeds, through his actions that Jesus is the Christ. And so just before this passage, Peter has finally got it. And Peter, as the spokesman of the disciples, says, you know what? You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. And he recognizes that. So Mark's gospel begins to shift directions from then. Because Mark's been building Jesus up, but at this point, when, after Peter makes this confession... Uh, Jesus' focus becomes the cross. And so we're going to pick up it, uh, in this gospel, verse 31 in chapter 8. And this is Jesus. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, 
Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. So once Jesus is identified as the Messiah here, he mentions what the mission of the Messiah is and what's going to happen to him as the Messiah. So he gives four things. The first thing is that part of the being the mission of the Messiah is to suffer many things. The second thing is, is that he's going to be rejected by the leadership of the covenant community. Uh, he kind of goes through a list of things. Uh, elders, chief priests, and scribes, that would be the Sanhedrin, uh, that body of Jewish leaders that, put, that wanted him to be put to death. The third thing is that he was to be killed, and he was killed on the cross. And the fourth thing is, is that he was to rise again. I think surely Jesus had in mind through this, the, the passage in Isaiah chapter 53, I think it's worth going back to and just reminding ourselves what that is. So keep one finger here in Mark and go back to Isaiah chapter 53. This is Isaiah's prophecy that I believe Jesus has in mind. And he says this, starting in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom... Men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, Yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And so Jesus, I believe, uh, in this passage in Mark, has this in mind when he's explaining, okay, this is what the, the mission of the Messiah is. And we're told in verse 32 that he said this plainly. Basically, he, he wasn't misunderstood. The disciples had been kind of misunderstanding Jesus all along on what he's all about. And so Jesus is making, making really sure that they understand that this is what it means for him to be the Messiah. Then Peter, all of a sudden, as the spokesman of the disciples, has this idea that Jesus has his theology wrong and that he needs some correction. So Peter takes him aside to, to rebuke him. The reason Peter does this is that the Jewish understanding of the Messiah at the time was that they were looking for some sort of political uh, deliverer. They were looking for someone to kind of overthrow the yoke of the Roman Empire 
Uh, so they were looking for a, a new deliverer, basically a, a David that was co- going, coming to institute a, a political nation-state Israel by overthrowing the, the Roman, I guess, rulers at the time. And Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man, I think even helped kind of lend to this uh, misunderstanding of his mission at, at the time. Uh, you can find this title in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. It says this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came on like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So, I mean, with this prophecy in mind, Jesus' title, because that's, that's what he says in verse 31, that it's the Son of Man. So I, I can understand how Peter could, could have that misunderstanding, given his culture and a prophecy like this. So again, t- Peter takes Jesus aside to say, okay, we need to shore up your theology a little bit, Jesus, to make sure that you have it correct. Well, I, I, I kind of wonder like, how many of us are kind of like that sometimes when it comes to God's word. You know, many times we, we, see, we read something, we know it's clear, but we find some way to kind of justify and wiggle out of it. Like, yeah, you know, that might be mostly right, but it can't be right in this occasion, so I don't really need to obey that fully. You know, I think we do that because we don't necessarily want to come under the authority of Scripture. Uh, when we come to the Bible, we need to come to it with the attitude like, no matter what it says, I'm going to obey it. We also, we often come to it with strings attached, and I think Peter's kind of coming to what Jesus is saying with his preconceived ideas of what God's Word is all about. However, Jesus obviously isn't going to have any of Peter's rebuke, and seeing that the other disciples are kind of watching Peter take Jesus aside to rebuke him, Jesus turns and rebukes him and calls him Satan. All right, so, so Peter goes from, uh, you know, from having this really high note just a couple verses earlier, like, man, way to go, Peter, you got it right that I'm the Christ, to being called Satan. So, you know, I'm, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm feeling with you, you here, Peter, because I'd be all jammed up, not really sure what to think at this time. But that word Satan, or that name Satan, is really, uh, the word means adversary. And Jesus is saying, look, you're, you're Satan, you're, you're an adversary right now to the mission of God. And that's why he's rebuked, is because he's setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God. For Peter has in mind this political kingdom, whereas Jesus has a bigger picture in mind, a bigger kingdom in view. So if, we're gonna, if we were going to turn to Matthew chapter 4, Peter's temptation is actually, or I mean, Jesus' temptation that's recorded there is much like Peter's temptation of Jesus at that time. And basically, Satan was tempting Jesus at that, at that time, like, okay, have glory without the cross. And that's the same thing that Peter's really is trying to do. He's trying to take Jesus aside and say, hey, how about you have glory, but no cross? And so that's why Jesus makes that connection and calls him Satan. For God had ordained the cross. We read that in Isaiah chapter 53, that it was the will of God to, to crush him, that that was God's will. And Jesus is like, look, that's, that's what God wants. It's not about like, what you are wanting at this time. The cross is the way to glory. But Jesus is, not, is sensing here that this is a, a teaching moment, teaching opportunity. I really need to, to explain what it means to be his disciple. And so, first and foremost, a disciple is one who follows Jesus, but I think it's interesting that when, you read, when we read through these next few verses, as we just did, verses 34 through 38, they really kind of parallel and mesh well with verse 31. 
the same kind of pattern emerges there. So what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? Well, there's five things that we can pick up in verses 34 through 38, so hang with me as we kind of look at these things. I think this is important because really this is about being a disciple of Jesus. So the first thing that, that Jesus gives us is to follow him means to deny yourself. All right, so what in the world does that mean, to deny yourself? Well, in a nutshell, it means to say no to the things that, that we want, the things that I want. It means to say no to our own wishes, our motivations, our desires, and to say yes to what God wants. So Christian discipleship begins with this denial of self. We can't come to God, we can't come to Jesus with an agenda, and we can't cling on to things that won't save us. Uh, let me kind of give you an example from whitewater rafting. Us, a lot of the youth have gone with me several times whitewater rafting, and it's a lot of fun. But one of the things that, that can happen, doesn't happen all that much, is you can find yourself on a nice swimming tour of the raging river. It doesn't happen all that much, but every once in a while, that, that'll happen. Well, let's say that you're going down on this river, and you see a tree, and you try to clamp onto the tree. Well, the thing is, you might think that you're saving yourself by grabbing onto the tree, but really, you're just tiring yourself out. The way that you can be saved is two things. One is you can get to the, the raft where you can be saved, or two, if you're really far away from the raft, the guide will throw you a rope. And you have a choice at that moment if you have a, a rope that's there. You can try to cling on to the tree for all you're worth, or you can let go of the tree and grab onto the rope, which is the way that you can be saved. In a similar manner, we must drop everything to follow Jesus. Uh, Luke nine fifty seven through 62 says this. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Uh, elsewhere, two chapters later in Mark, Jesus encounters this rich, wrong, young ruler, and he says, look, if you really want to follow after me, you need to give up all of your wealth, which the rich, ru- young ruler, he doesn't do and doesn't follow Jesus. You see, the cost of following Jesus is high. It's not something that we do lightly. It's not a small or empty decision. It means that we've got to say, say no to everything, our agenda, and yes to Jesus. You can't say both yes to myself and yes to Jesus in the same breath. Uh, that would be to serve two masters, as Jesus would say. And you can't do that. You either love the one and hate the other. And that's what Jesus would explain. I think many of us have struggled with this in some way or another. Uh, we're usually okay with following Jesus up to the point to where it makes us uncomfortable. You know, as soon as it begins to wiggle, you know, mess with our lives, then it's like, you know, I'm not so sure about this Christian thing anymore. It may mean that we have to give up that lifestyle of wealth and of comfort because uh, many times he may, call, uh, he may ask us to do something that's outside of that. Or it might be a relationship. Like, I really enjoy this person to be around because they make me feel good. But sometimes to follow Jesus may mean that we need to give up that relationship with that person so that we can fully follow him. Or it could be prestige or power. You know, it could be that's what's holding us back from fully following Jesus. It could be that some of you, one of us may have to say no to that job promotion because God has you exactly where he wants you. 
So I, I think many of us are provisional Christians. And by that I mean that we're going to follow God until it messes with us. It means I'm going to follow you, Jesus, but, you know, when things get a little hairy, not so much. You know, I think as soon as we, we began giving God our contingencies, our but, or on, our untils, that's when we run into issues. And that's where we have ceased to deny ourselves, because we're coming to him with that agenda. And think about it this way. You know, when Jesus gave of himself on the cross, he gave 100% of himself for you. And in return, we're to give 100% of ourselves to him. Not 50, not 60, not 70, but 100% of ourselves to Jesus. So to deny yourselves means to say no to ourselves and yes to Jesus. And I guess a good question to think about if we call ourselves a Christian is, have we done that? Have we come to the point where we said no to everything that I want and yes to what Jesus wants for us? The second thing that Jesus tells us here in Mark about following him is that it means to take up one's cross. So after denying oneself, one is to, to die and to bear the instrument of shame and of suffering. You know, for, for us, we put crosses on our Bibles, on a bumper sticker, around our neck, on a wall. Uh, we, we use it as kind of a religious symbol. But however, it wasn't such a symbol to the Jews and to the individuals under the Roman Empire. It, was, it would have been an emblem of suffering and shame and of execution. So why does Jesus tell the, these Jews, tell his followers to take it up? Well, first and foremost, I think it's kind of rooted back in verse 31, where if we're going to follow Jesus, it means that we have to follow him completely. He went to the cross, and so, was, and so must we. But you, you may say, like, okay, that sounds really good. I'm supposed to follow Jesus to the cross, but am I literally supposed to hang myself up on a cross? What in the world does that mean? I think the first thing that we can say is that we will suffer. The, cro- the cross was first and foremost a, a symbol, an emblem of suffering for Jesus. And to follow Jesus means that we will suffer. Jesus says this in John sixteen thirty three: In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So we like that second part of the verse, you know, take heart, I have overcome the world, but not necessarily the first. This idea that, oh, or we will have tribulation. That's something that is a, that's going to happen. John, Jesus would say this earlier in the book of John, uh, chapter 15, verses 18 and 20. He would say this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So one of the ways that we can identify ourselves as a Christian is in our sufferings. It's like our suffering for the name of Christ. For our brothers and sisters around the globe, this is a very real and tangible thing for them. For example, if you're in an Islamic country, it could very well mean your death. When you're baptized, it could very well mean that you will die. And your family will think that they are doing a service to Allah by killing you. In a similar way, in India... If you claim to follow Christ, my understanding is that it's a good way to lose all of your, your rights as a citizen so that you can't inherit property and your children can't inherit your property. And so that's what happens around the world. But what about us? What happens to, in America in ways that we can experience suffering? I don't know if we're going to fully be able to understand what this may look like in America, but I, I think that many of us struggle with this because we're kind of prosperity gospel adherents 
in this, and by the prosperity gospel basically is this, is that God is out for your, your wealth, your health, and your happiness. However, that portrait that Jesus is painting for discipleship here is radically different. And so for us, it may mean by sticking up for our faith at work, it may mean that we lose our job. Because we stood up and had integrity in our work, we may lose our job for that. Or it may mean that we may frustrate our family members because we're always talking about this Jesus fellow. It may mean that we may lose our business or have a loss of business because of the way that we go about doing our business. Or it could mean that we lose a scholarship, those of us who are in college or looking at college, because of your beliefs. So following Jesus to the cross means that we will, we may experience suffering. Something that a pastor said, I don't remember who uh, said this, but it has kind of stuck with me. And I, I, you know, believe it or not, I was one of those people that may not look like I'm paying attention, but I am. Yeah. I've noticed that about some of my students. I don't think they're listening. And then later on I asked them, and they actually were. But one of the things that he said is this. Like, if you look at Jesus after his resurrection, he still bore the scars of the cross. You know, God turned that cross into glory, but Jesus still bore those, those scars. And so he asked, where are your scars? What's, what, where is your sufferings? What have you suffered for the name of Christ? And when you look back throughout uh, the whole biblical history, you realize that's a common theme. Uh, all of God's saints in the Old Testament and New Testament, I, I have a hard time thinking of one that did not experience suffering in one form or another. Therefore, to follow Jesus, I think, means to bear a cross and to, and to suffer. However, it also means to die. And denying ourselves, hinted at this, taking up our cross, definitely leads us there. But Jesus makes it even more clear that we are to die to ourselves. So our old way of living is dead, and rather we are to, to follow Christ. So that's what it, kind of what it means to repent, is to die to ourselves, to die to that old way of living, so that we can follow Christ fully. We are to despise and kill that old life of sin. But I think this leads to the next few things that Jesus says about discipleship here in Mark chapter 8. Um, he, it sounds like he's talking out of both sides of his mouth. Let me read it again, and then we'll kind of unpack it. He says this, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So what in the world is Jesus meaning here? So this idea of self-preservation is not something that can save according to Jesus. By seeking to keep my life, by seeking to preserve one's life, by one's own action is futile. Why? Well, the Bible is clear over and over again, from Genesis to Revelation, that it is impossible for human beings to save themselves. Left to our own devices, we would only pursue a life of sin. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says this, For it is by grace you are saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. So one is saved by the grace of God alone. Okay, it's not trying to save, so by trying to save our life means that we lose it in the very end. And in particular view, I think Jesus is pointing us to ultimate things rather than earthly things. That's in his rebuke to Peter. And Jesus says this in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. So Jesus, both here in Matthew and in Mark, is pointing out that the fear of man can restrain us from pursuing ultimate things, the things that really do matter in the long run. Uh, many times we're, we allow what other people think of us and distract us from serving God fully. So by seeking to save our lives from other human beings and that kind of thing, we can end up losing 
our life in the end. Conversely, we're going to lay down our lives for Jesus and for Jesus' gospel. If you notice, Jesus ties those two things together. He says both for my sake and the gospels will save it. You know, in his person and the gospel, they're tied so closely together that it really is the same thing. And you may say, that, you know, that sounds really good, Andrew, but what does that look like here in America? We don't really experience this physical persecution that you're talking about around the world. Well, maybe so, but I think we can sense in our culture that the times are a-changing. Uh, we can sense in our culture that there are many, hostil- many, many people, many of our authorities that are now hostile against what we believe. For example, uh, just this week, uh, the Houston City Council was seeking the sermons of uh, the past, uh, local evangelical pastors because they wanted to make sure that what they said was the politically correct version of personhood, that is male and female, in marriage. And they wanted to get their sermon manuscripts to make sure it was kosher. So to me, I think it means, it seems that those sorts of things are going to be happening more and more likely. We're going to face censorship, loss of job, loss of money. So I I think it's important for us to think through this now. Like, what are we going to do if those days do come? What will we do? Will we lay our lives down for the gospel? Are we willing to give up those comforts? Paul writes in Philippians 1.21, For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul's desires for his whole life to be given to the service of Christ and for Christ's gospel. It has been said that a man doesn't really know what he is living for until he knows what he's willing to die for. So what are you willing to die for? I think we settle for a mediocre life a lot of times, for just kind of a life that just kind of goes with the flow, rather than a life sold out for the gospel. I, you know, when I was putting this together, I couldn't help but think, of the four men who gave their lives for the gospel in South America. You've probably heard of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott, uh, plus there are two other people who are with them, who gladly laid it all down on the line for the gospel, for the salvation of these Wadoni people. And who knows, God may be calling you to do the same. He may be calling you to go to a hard-to-reach group like that that may very well kill you for coming there with the gospel. And Jim Elliott, before his death, he once wrote this, and I think it's so true. He said that he is no fool to give that which he cannot keep, to gain that which he cannot lose. I think Elliott understood what Jesus was meaning here. We can't keep our lives. We can't hold on to it. The more we try to hold on to it, the more that we we lose it. And the Bible does indeed speak of eternal inheritance. So Jim Elliott and many Christians like him and before him are gladly laying it all down for the gospel. Um, there was something that came to my mind this morning, something that I read uh, in a book, uh, I don't know, I was going to say a long time ago, but 10 years for some of you probably doesn't sound like that long ago. Um, it's Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship. And uh, in this book, he was laying out this uh, dichotomy between cheap grace and costly grace. And I think many of us, are cheap grace, and, and at the time, I was a cheap grace adherent. And, and his prose and the way that he said things stuck with me. So let me read to you some of the things that he said. He said this about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. And then later on, he, he defined what 
the true grace was that it's explained in the gospel. And he said this, and he called it costly grace. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. It is costly because it condemns sin. And grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a yeah. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. So Christian, are, do you believe in cheap grace or costly grace? So the fourth thing that Jesus tells us here about being his disciple, it means to be courageous in one's testimony of Jesus. That's what Jesus says in verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my, my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Jesus charges his disciples to be bold in their testimony regarding Jesus. Basically, if one is bold in his testimony before men about Jesus, then Jesus will recognize you when he returns in his glory. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John have just healed a man, and they're being charged with the Jewish leaders to not preach the gospel anymore, to stop talking about Jesus. They're being threatened and bullied and being told, hey, don't do this anymore. However, Peter and John wouldn't be scared off in this way. Uh, Peter would say this in, in Acts 4, 8 through 12. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed t- done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has, come be, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And later on in this chapter, Peter would say this in verse 19 and 20, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You know, it's interesting to note that a couple months earlier, Peter was found denying Christ three times. You know, he, he had called curses on himself and saying, I never knew the man. Uh, his three denials are infamous. We all know about that. But it's, something must have radically changed Peter's life to go from a, a timid coward to a bold proclaimer. Something happened to Peter that changed him. Well, two things. The first thing was that he saw the resurrected Lord. And the second thing was that of the reception of the Holy Spirit. And this spirit gives us that power and that courage. Paul says this in Second T- Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So how often do we let our fear of man uh, distract us from giving testimony about our Lord? I know for myself there are many times where opportunities can arise, where I have an opportunity to share the gospel with somebody, but sometimes I, I get the sense like, well, if I, if I say that, it's going to change our relationship and I may lose a friend. And so I, I kind of go through this debate and sometimes I don't share because I get more concerned about my friendship or relationship with this friend rather than sharing the gospel. And when I do that, what I'm really doing is I'm elevating the, my relationship with my, my friend over my relationship with God and their relationship with God. So if you notice... Peter's testimony from earlier, he said that he cannot but speak. We cannot but speak. 
In other words, people couldn't restrain himself. He couldn't stop himself. He had to preach the gospel. You know, when I was thinking about that, it, I think it's one of the markers of our Christian life, one of the, the ways in which we could know whether or not we are a, a true follower of Christ or not, is whether or not we have the boldness to proclaim what we believe. If we consistently kind of shrink back and pull back from declaring the gospel, we prove by our omission, by our lack of doing it, that we don't really have a deep-seated conviction about it. We talk about those things that we're passionate about. Uh, recently, uh, this, w- this last week, I was at a state convention, and I heard a story, I've, I've heard it before, about George Whitfield and David Hume. And if you don't know who they are, that's okay, I'm going to tell you here in a second. But David Hume was a famous skeptic. He was an agnostic, uh, basically an agnostic as a person who doesn't either affirm the existence of God or deny the existence of God. But he was a famous skeptic at, during this time. And he went to go hear the preaching of the, the, probably the greatest evangelist in the English language, George Whitfield. And when asked, uh, some, uh, I think, journalist was there, or writer was there, and he sees David Hume there, and he's like, what are you doing here? You know, why are you coming here to hear David Whitfield preach? You don't believe anything that he's saying. And David Hume, a skeptic, replies to this guy, I may not, but he does. You know, Hume went to hear from George Whitfield because he was a guy, he was a man, who was so impressed by God that he impressed others. And my hope is that God would burn that passion into each and every one of us so that we, like Peter and like Whitfield, could say we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. The fifth thing is this. Following Jesus means to receive greater than what one gave up. One of the interesting themes of following Jesus is that he lavishly rewards his followers. Jesus would say this in two chapters later in chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus' point is that the person who follows him receives the awesome inheritance of eternal life. And this blessing of eternal life isn't solely when a person dies and returns in his glory, but it begins now. The joy of that eternal life can be felt in the here and now. Jesus says this in John 10, 10, one of my favorite verses. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. You see, Jesus demands your life in order to give you true and everlasting life. It might seem cruel at first glance when Jesus talks about giving up your life for the sake of him and the gospel, but really it's where you find true life. So following Jesus can be costly and is costly to be sure. Yet Jesus promises us abundant life now and in the future. You know, I I don't know where you guys are at in all this, but whenever I think about the words of Jesus regarding discipleship, I'm always challenged. Um, I know that I am not always as sold out as I need to be for the sake of the gospel. Uh, I think we settle too many many times for for less than what Jesus has promised. For we think that what's here and now is going to be the lasting things instead of the heaven that is to come. So for the one who calls himself or herself a Christian this morning, ask yourself, are you living as a disciple? Look at those five things that Jesus says about being his disciple. Have you laid down your life for the gospel? Have you taken up your cross? Have you denied yourself? 
or you're being bold in your testimony. I think many of us kind of play the game of the Christian life. And by that, that I mean we kind of do like a hokey pokey kind of thing. We put our right foot in, put our right foot out. We do the hokey pokey, turn ourselves about. But we're not all in. You know, we kind of put our foot in, then we take it out. Put our foot in, we take it out. And we don't go all in for the gospel. See, Jesus isn't after that. Jesus is after a wholehearted disciple. He's out to make us fitting sons and daughters of the one true king. You know, he is that elder brother who is showing us what it means to live as a son or daughter of God. So being a Christian isn't a game to be played, but rather a a life to be lived. So don't play around with being a Christian, but give your life to Christ. And if you're here today, maybe you don't know what that means to follow Christ. Consider the cost. Count it. But let me tell you, you know, let me tell you that the cost of discipleship is high. That's what Jesus is laying out before us. But David Platt, he once said something that I think is so true, that the cost of non-discipleship is even higher. So count the cost. Follow Jesus no matter what. So we're going to pray this morning. We're going to reflect upon these things. And let me uh, tell tell you a little bit of what happens at this time. Um, After the worship team uh, plays, uh, feel free to come afterwards to talk to myself. Uh, Some of the leaders of our church would be happy to talk to you about what it means to have uh, a relationship with Jesus, what it means. Father, I thank you for for your word. Jesus, I do pray that we would follow you no matter the cost. God, I pray that we would lay it all down on the line for the sake of the gospel. God, to realize that we need to deny ourselves, to give up those things that we want most, to do what you want. God, I pray that it would be your will and not our will. God, I do pray that if any one of us needs to make a commitment to follow you this morning, that you would so burn a passion in us to follow you no matter what, that, we would, that people would be able to see that we are disciples because of the way that we are totally abandoned for your cause. Jesus, I thank you uh, for the gift of eternal life. God, we ask this in your name. Amen.